Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. If I were to ask you, um, what does your financial picture look like? Your budgeting picture, maybe your investments? Uh, If we sat down and kind of had a a conversation together, um, what would I find out about you? Um, you know, maybe for the, for the topic of finances and investing, it's a little bit intimidating for you. Perhaps it's like, oh my goodness, there's so much out there to do. There's all these different opportunities. I, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do if I'm in the right tier of my investments, or I'm not really sure it's a little bit intimidating overall. Or maybe you're uh, really into the stock market. Maybe you love watching uh, network television that's constantly the reels of all the different things that are going on with the stocks. Maybe you like choosing them, figuring out what's going on, and riding it out to make sure you make the best investment. Or maybe you are still stuck in 1995 and you really like CDs. And I'm going to talk about compact discs. I'm talking about like certificates of deposit, and that's the way that you decide to invest. Uh, I, began, I begin by asking, what is your philosophy of money and investing? Because from what um, Greg read to us, we realized that this is what we're going to talk about here today. My financial background was probably pretty typical of a Christian conservative home. Uh, my dad and mom taught me to, to work hard. And then the wages that I received, I need to start by giving 10% to my church. Uh, and then I need to save a large portion of it for college uh, and maybe even some for retirement. And then the sum of it should go to Christmas presents. And by the end, whatever little bit was left over, then I could spend that how I wanted to which probably meant like gas and other little small things around that maybe I wanted. Uh, I remember that from, from my dad's lips that debt was bad and that um, saving was good, uh, obviously thinking about that. And this is a rough sketch of what my, my, uh, my financial you know, understanding was as my dad and mom taught me. I remember that saving for college and retirement was a good thing, Right? Uh, and of course, that I should simply try to also have a heart of generosity, to give, to love others. I think this is a really good starting point for me. It set me on like a, a healthy path of patterns of making sure I didn't overspend. I, I graduated from college debt-free. That's no small thing, as you probably know. Um, the only other thing I would maybe add to the picture was the day that my dad talked to me about a 401k. And he talked to me about this incredible, magical thing called compounding interest, right? The, the, these are the basic investments. Um, I can remember him always preaching about the wisdom, like the, the biblical wisdom of saving for the future. But he also told me there's this little trick you don't know, and it's called putting your money into investments. Because if you do this, it has the opportunity to grow, which blew my mind, right? And understand this. And I saw it happen in very small ways. I never became a financial wizard or anything like that, but I understood the laws of compounding interest. And understanding that was enough to help me make sure that I put some money in simple, diversified, long-term investments. 
This is exactly what we're looking at when we look at these six verses in Ecclesiastes 11. He's telling us this. Our author is giving us a sure and very wise strategy for investing under the sun. Well, let's take a look here together. I want you to take a look. Verse 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, you've probably heard this verse quoted by several different people before. It's even kind of part of our own American vernacular. We talk about this, to cast your bread upon the waters. But if you're like me, you know what that's supposed to mean, like what it's conveying, but you may not know exactly what casting your bread on the water actually means. Uh, I've entitled today's sermon, Soggy Bread, the Best 401k. Uh, that's mainly because I think it's kind of a catchy title, uh, but also because we're all wondering what in the world does it mean to cast your bread on the water? There have been uh, many different suggestions ranging from a discussion of when like someone's on a voyage, they were jettisoning the bread off the back in a dangerous voyage to not carry too much, to completely other situation where someone's saying that this is really about encouraging us in the ancient practice of making beer, throwing your bread upon the water. Now, I, I appreciate the creativity of some of these options, um, but I don't think they actually seem to line up with what our text is saying. The best option, and I think actually one that's faithful to what he's been talking about and what he will talk about, is the language of investment. It seems that our author is talking about international sea trade over the oceans. I mean, this could certainly be talking about loaves of bread that were baked and, and maybe stored somewhere, but more likely he's using a way for us to understand the topic of putting grain on a boat to send and trade perhaps in commodities, in a way to gain leverage in this place or another, taking this grain and engaging in trade across the oceans with other nations as a way to grow our abundance. You may be able to break into other markets, maybe get stuff that you couldn't get at home if you're able to engage in this kind of international trade. And we understand this isn't something that we get back right away, right? He says that here. This is a long-term investment. In verse 1, he says that you will find it after many days. It's not a quick turnaround here. Uh, in verse 2, we get our, our first taste of diversified in investing here. Take a look. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, you and I understand this, right? It's kind of like the phrase that we use, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I'm talking about diversification here. If we stick with international sea trade again, this example, we understand why he would say this, right? I mean, just think about what it is like to try to cross the seas with goods. I mean, especially loaded with maybe heavy stuff or perhaps buoyant stuff, depends. But a vessel, a ship, with precious commodities bobs across the top of one of the most powerful natural wonders on earth, the ocean, no matter which one it is. There are so many things that could go wrong, right? I mean, from unruly pirates to terrible weather to unfavorable currents to even, like, if you get real imaginative, all the different sea monsters that could overtake your vessel, right? All kinds of stuff could happen. According to a, an article that I read in Popular Mechanics, they conservatively estimate that over the recorded history of seafaring, which isn't necessarily that old, some three million vessels have been lost to shipwrecks alone. 
That's not even to mention all the times that they run aground or run ashore, had to get rid of their cargo or had to just stop halfway to their, in their, their destination they're trying to go. That's not even to talk about all that. And that's only considering transportation, right, in a situation like this. What about if they make it there and they, they get there and they don't care about what cargo they're bringing? Or maybe the, the, the country that they're going to is under siege. There's no way to actually trade this stuff. Running goods across the ocean is no sure thing. And that's only to consider the transportation, like I said. But what he is saying here is diversify your investments. Not only just go to one ship, but go to seven or eight different ones. Invest across these different ways. Spread out your risk because you don't know what disaster might happen on earth. You don't know how the currents of the sea will make the journey three times longer than it's supposed to be, right? You don't know that the, the ruler will be having a bad day and like, I don't want you in my city, get out of here. You don't know which storm will whip up to make a, a widow maker and, and just flatten all the different ships. Let's bring it close to home, right? At the beginning of, end of 2019 and beginning of 2020, before things hit, no one was investing heavily in toilet paper. But if they knew the future, they should have, right? You get what I'm saying here. A good investor won't put all their eggs in one basket. They'll be diversified. Why? Because he is wise enough to know, get this, he's wise enough to know that he doesn't know. He understands the world that he lives in and that there's so many things that are out of his control. That little phrase, you don't know, is used four times in these six verses. If you look, you can see it in verse 2, in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. Now, in verse 3, he dives into this reality a little bit deeper that we don't really know. He harps on this idea. He's going to make a big deal out of this so that we understand that a wise investor knows that bad stuff is going to happen. It's not a matter of if it will happen. It's a matter of when it will happen. Verse 3 says, If the clouds are full of rain, they enter themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now he switches from talking about seafaring analogy here to one of nature and one of agriculture. Not only is investing risky, it's also almost certain that at some point you will lose. It's going to happen. That's what he's saying in the first half of verse 3. Now, of course, when we think about rain, it's usually a good thing for crops. But if a full cloud empties all of itself out on the earth at once, you probably know that this will be a destructive washout, some sort of flash flood that can absolutely devastate crops. Losing to some sort of national, natural disaster is inevitable. It's going to happen at some point. Bad stuff is going to happen. But if the first half of verse 3 is about the inevitability of failure, the second half is about the unpredictable nature of that failure. He says, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. The point here is this, you don't know which way the wind is going to blow and where the tree is going to fall. You and I don't have control over those things. You don't know. He's making the point that we really don't know very much. Thus, we could think that the answer to all this disaster and uncertainty uh, and pressure would be maybe some sort of insurance, right? Or maybe it's a saving or safety or patience or better preparedness or contingency planning of some sort. But strangely, that's not what he tells us to do in verse 4. 
He says, he who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. He's carrying over this idea that he started in verse 3. The inevitability of destructive rain and the unpredictability of the winds that come back and forth. Now, I love this little statement because he's doing a couple things here. He shows us the fatal flaw of us trying to control the wind that you can all hear right now. Right? That was part of my whole shtick here. I was just waiting for that to happen. Yeah, right. I'm out of control. It's going to happen again. You're all going to get distracted again. I have no way of telling what's going to happen here. However, I love what he says here. If you think you can control these things, think again. If you're constantly looking for the perfect scenario, constantly trying to have control over the situation, guess what? You'll never invest. And if you never invest, guess what? You'll never get the rewards from investing. We get it, right? If if you never sow, you'll never reap. It's not going to happen. It doesn't magically appear out there. At this point, it's, it's almost like he's trying to show us that we already understand the dynamics that are at play here. We're dealing with something that is way above us, way above our pay grade here. In verse 5, he says, As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, this act of investing is ultimately in the hand of God. We understand this, not in your and my feeble hands of human control somehow, but rather in the hands of God. It's like he's saying, hold on, you and I have no idea how the essence of a person, like the very life comes into them as they are being conceived, right? We understand how conception works, but we we don't know how a life actually gets there and grows and is a person. We have no idea how that works. Yeah, yeah, we all agree on that, right? We both admit that. So it seems that there are things that we both don't understand in this world, and yet it doesn't stop us from trusting the God who does these things. Likewise, your investments aren't in your control. They're not. Ultimately, you must trust that God will do what he says he will do with these things. And so he finally turns to verse 6 and tells us to invest. He says, In the morning sow your seed, and that evening hold, uh, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Not only should you diversify your investments, you should always add to them consistently, on a consistent basis, at many different times, giving to them all, from morning to evening, he says in his words here since we don't really know whether the morning or the evening investment will work out better. Or, as he says, if both of them will do good. We don't know. Remember chapter 3, right? God is over all what? Times. All seasons. And thus, the best place to leave our investments are in his hands. At the end of all this, it becomes clear that we have some really good investing advice. If I were to put it into a single sentence... It might be something like this. Because God is the only one who's truly in control, we should invest freely, consistently, and in diverse ways. Right? There it is. I think it's pretty good advice. Because God is the only one truly in control, we should invest freely, consistently, and in diverse ways. You and I just got a financial lesson from one of the wisest men ever to be in the world. You want to be wise in your finances and your skills and all that you've got? 
follow this advice. It will pay off. But I want to ask, how does this passage of Scripture teach us to be better Christians or to love God with our heart, soul, and mind or to love our neighbor as ourselves? It seems as though this is just about being wise stewards of all the resources that God has given us, right? Well, we know that Jesus comes and talks about being wise stewards of our resources too, doesn't he? Well, certainly. Doesn't, doesn't he talk about investing? Let me read for you Matthew 6, 19-21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you probably already know verse 33 and 34, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I mean, this is the Christian version of what he's saying here in Ecclesiastes, right? It absolutely is. He's encouraging us to trust God, to graciously perform good works that we would please God, to invest our time and money and hearts in something that is lasting, not just something that we'll have to leave here after we die. He's encouraging us to cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. He says, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Yes, absolutely, this is what we should be thinking about as Christians when we read Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. But a few of you are paying attention right now. A few of you are. You're bothered by this just as much as I am. What right do I have to go from Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6? Yeah, pay attention, ready? Here we go. I can see everyone's getting kind of lulled to sleep because it's just a financial advice course. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not like Christianese where we jump to take and now, now we're going to talk about it in the Christian realm. No, no, no. You better ask me the question, how do you have the right to go from financial advice to talking about the kingdom of God? And Chris, you're telling me that Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 is about investing in the kingdom of God? Like, is that, is that legitimate for me to do? Like, what are the rules here when we're reading the Bible? What are the rules here for taking something from the Old Testament and jumping to applying in a certain way in the New Testament? Listen carefully, because this is really important for you, because all of us should be reading the Bible and not just the New Testament. All of us should be reading the whole Bible. It is the counsel of God. It is useful for our instruction, for the honor and glory of God, and for our betterment. So let's think of together about this. It's an important question as we consider, especially the Old Testament. Yes, there are basic rules that you and I need to follow when we interpret any passage in the Bible. But the foundational one for us, when we think about this, is that we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We don't get to break open the English book and find the rules for learning and understanding English sentences and apply that in a specific hardline way that that's where meaning comes from. The way that we understand how an author uses a word is making sure we understand the context. And the way that we start to help ourselves understand how he uses a concept in there is to consider how it uses it in other areas in that genre. And then get this, not only that, we have to start thinking about how God works in all of history. So we back up even further and how he's used it throughout time. 
And then we go one step further to think, how do we understand this rightly as we look to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his teaching through the apostles? This is a good question. As an important side note here, we're starting to understand that not only does God, the big A, like the author, write the whole Bible, but he uses specific people throughout times. People that have lived and died and actually by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have penned the scriptures. There are basic rules, but we need to follow the most important one that we understand the proper context. And I'm not just talking about the immediate context only. We've got to start there. But then we have to start thinking about the other contexts as well. Again, uh, an important side note, the intentions of the human authors and what they're trying to say is never in conflict with the divine author and what he is trying to say. It's certainly true that human authors are limited in, in knowing just how far-reaching their concepts would be, but that doesn't mean that they're ever in conflict with what God was doing in them. Now, that being said, I think it's wise for us to look at this text a little more deeply. I think it's important for us that we look at this and read verses 1 through 6 within the larger context, specifically of Ecclesiastes, but also of the Old Testament. Now, kids, I just got your parents all their attention. I want to get your attention now. I want you to think with me. You're like, I don't understand all that you're really saying. My kids tell me that regularly. Like, I understood this part and this part, but like, in the middle part, I didn't really know what you're talking about. But these are the things I, I could remember. That's good. This is what we're trying to do here, guys. I am trying to help us learn to read the Bible properly on its own terms. All of the Bible glorifies God. All of it helps us and teaches us to live before him in the world that he's given us. When you read the Bible, guys, in your family devotions, maybe it's, after, uh, maybe it's before bed, maybe it's after a meal, you guys sit down and read the Bible together. When you read the Old Testament, or maybe when you're listening to me, preaching the Old Testament, you should be thinking about some of the words and some of the phrases and some of the concepts and think, hey, I know something about that from the New Testament as well. That should be a right question that you ask. And what your parents should be doing is thinking that through wisely to say, yes, how do we then interpret that and understand what's going on between these two? This is the practice and work of understanding and interpreting the Bible. And it's not just for me, guys. It's not just for an elder. It's for each of us as we read God's word intelligently so that we might obey according to what he has asked of us. So parents, it's our job to understand what these connections mean as well. In our case today, we need to think more deeply about the investment passage here in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, right? When I, when I first started interpreting this passage this week, it bothered me. I didn't really like the fact that we go from talking about these really important, deep discussions about frustration and joy and living and death, and now we're talking about finances? Really? Like, I think you got deeper stuff to talk about, Kohelet, like the preacher, the teacher. That, you're just going to talk about finances now? Is, is that the transition here? Go to chapter 11, and all of a sudden we're just like, well, make sure your money is right. I mean, he is going from chapter 9, talking about death coming to everyone, then in chapter 10, about living wisely, even though the world around us doesn't follow the wisdom of God, to talking about a retirement plan? Is that what he's doing here? I'm not trying to be silly. I'm trying to make us think. It's the right question that we should think about and carefully try our best to understand what he is talking about. Is it possible 
that he isn't only talking about finances or temporal investments. Is it possible that he is thinking bigger picture than this? For instance, when we read this passage, does it seem strange to anyone else that he never really tells us what exactly we're supposed to be investing? Now, I filled in all the blanks, right? It seemed like money, but he doesn't actually really tell us exactly what it is here. Or does it bother anyone that he doesn't really talk about receiving back a reward in any certain terms about what that actually is supposed to look like? Like, what's the purpose of our investment? He just kind of talks about the beauty of investments. It doesn't seem like he's telling us exactly how he spells it out here. Or maybe the most disturbing one, it took me like two days to like work through this. Do you, do you guys remember what he talks about when he talks about profit or gain? How does the writer of Ecclesiastes think about gain or profit in this life? He shows us from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And then he answers it in chapter 2, verse 3. His own questions after much observation, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So now you're giving my financial advice so that I will gain under the sun? Do you get it? Understand here, like, doesn't that seem somewhat contradictory? Chapter 5 is abundantly clear that wealth and honor can't satisfy. As Will Butler texted me, a member here, he said, more money, more problems. Man, that is so true if you read chapter 5. And then chapter 2, verse 21, kills us when we think about all the work for gain that we've done. It says sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Therefore, if you're keeping all this in mind as you continue to read Ecclesiastes, you're going to come to 11, 1 through 6, and you should be saying this seems contradictory unless we're talking about gaining things that are not just under the sun. The key to understanding this passage well is to think about all that he has said already. To think through what could possibly mean when he says, give a portion, very important word, give a portion to seven or even to eight. You've heard that word before. You might have heard it as portion or share or lot throughout all of Ecclesiastes here. Now, to cut to the chase, Ecclesiastes 11 is not giving us just financial advice, it certainly works. But these are commands about who, how you and I should live out our lives that we've been given by God, our lots, our portions that he has given to us. In verse 1, he says, don't hold your bread too tightly, guys. Instead, he says, cast it out. Don't hold on to all the things that God has given to you. Don't bury them in the ground for safekeeping somehow. You think God's going to hold on to it? So, let me just ask, you guys can fill in the blank. There's so much stuff here. There's so much application today, but I'm going to leave most of it for you to do. What has he given to you? What is your lot? What is your share? What is your portion? Some of you are married. That is part of it. Some of you have great jobs. Some of you have children. All of us have in some way, some amount of, of skills. We've been given a heart. How should, we, how should we even consider all that we have been given? How about your money? But we're going to ask the next question about where that should go, right? We'll get there. But like, yeah, that's something he's given to me. How about your skills? How about your relationships? How about your time? 
that He's given you alive here on this earth? How about your homes? How about your food? What has He given to you? What is part of your lot, your portion? He says these are the things, all of it, are to be invested. They're not just for you and I to hold on and try to gain, but rather to see them as investments. By the way, are any of these things I just listed actually ours? Can you really hold on to any of them? We know otherwise. He calls us to invest in many different ventures. This is a call to fully trust God and to understand that He's calling us to do this in the life that He's given to us right now. It's not ours to hold on to. It's ours to steward, to use, to give, to invest. That's why I would say invest freely. This is, should be an outflow of us. To quote Augustine, he says, love God and do as you please. That's exactly right. Let's talk about investments, though. I would say it this way. Love God and invest how you please. Take what God has given to you and invest it. In verse 2, he's not just talking about a diverse financial portfolio. He's talking about so many different opportunities that you and I have in this life to glorify God and bless the world around us. He says seven or eight ventures. Yeah, uh, you don't have any idea how many different ways there are to invest what God has given to us. Seven or eight's a really low number. His point is like, hey, you should be diversified in all the things that you do in your own investments. Yeah, this is not just about finances. You could give money to support the Great Commission. You could do it to our church. You could do it to missionaries. You could give money to the needy and the oppressed in our own city. You could give your time to worshiping God time to obeying the Great Commission. Give your time to learn the Bible, to open it up and to grow. That's an investment, guys. A time to love others, to evangelize our children or the lost, our neighbors, our family members. All these things are to invest what God has given us into His field. You can give time to prayer or to, to learning how to intercede on behalf of others. You could serve your brothers and sisters here even at our church as you train our children in Sunday school. What an investment. Man, there, there's, some investments are better than others. But I'm just letting you know, there's lots out there that you could choose from. You could be hospitable with your time. Some of you do this with your, your schedules, with your lunches, you meet people. Or perhaps you invite them over to your home. You do it with your food. You do it with all the different things, your skills, maybe helping them in their own home. Seven or eight... <laughs> aren't exact when it comes to the number of ways that we should invest. That doesn't mean you have to do all of them. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that he says to invest in many different ways. Now, verse 3 and 4, he brings us to consider our fears. This just gets real honest. It's a desire for control that we all have. We know this. I, I desire to make sure that I don't fail at this venture. Man, that is a paralyzing fear, guys. I know so many of us who have some modicum of success in our lives, you know what our biggest fear is? Somehow losing it and failing. We get it. He tells us here, though, it's inevitable. Failure will come. And by the way, it's unpredictable. You have no idea when it will come. So what should you do? Invest. I know some people who are constantly, you've probably known people like this, they're constantly looking for the best gas price, right? 
Yeah, I know you laugh because you, maybe some of you are those people. But like, I know some people who are like, oh, if I get gas here, oh man, it's the worst because then I'll fill up and I'll go down the road and it's two cents cheaper and I've lost. And so what do I do? Keep driving. Just keep on driving. Guess what? If that happens over and over and over again, you eventually run out of gas. You all understand this, right? That's what he's saying here. If you just keep on looking for the wind, you just keep on figuring out when the clouds will fall, when the rain's going to happen, you're waiting for the perfect scenario to invest in God's kingdom, you're never going to invest. And if you never invest, you will not reap. We understand this principle. But he's showing us here that he tells us, hey, this is how you should do. Enter into this fray, even though you don't understand what's going to happen. This kind of fear can control your life. So stop worrying and invest, even if you don't know what the results will be. Now, I just want to be honest about this. I, I, I don't know how many times I have failed to witness, especially whether it's a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. I failed to witness to Jesus about the truth of Jesus Christ because it wasn't the perfect time, right? Do we not all believe that stupid lie? That somehow if we just wait for the perfect time with the gospel, bam, they're going to get saved. Man, we are foolish. Who does this work of salvation? Who is the one behind all and the one that revives hearts and makes stony hearts fleshy? It is God and God alone. So don't wait for the perfect time to serve, to love, to show Christ to another. Go ahead and invest. The one who is constantly looking for the perfect conditions won't sow, and therefore they won't reap. In verse 5, he makes it so clear that God's ways are far greater than our ways, and that despite the fact that we can't see what he's doing, we can trust that he's doing, that he is working. Do you know how God makes a real living person that comes into a person at conception? Neither do I know this at all, but I'll tell you what, I know that he does it. I have no idea how he's going to work in all the different investments that we make and we go and we try, but he will do it. There are so many times where I've finished a sermon and thought, oh man, I really blew that. I forgot to talk about these things. I didn't give good illustrations and on and on that goes. Don't get me wrong. I want to get better and better at being a, a, a clear mouthpiece of the gospel. The truth is though, that I have no idea how God will use the reading and preaching of his word. And I thank him that he uses a very small and feeble mouthpiece to attempt to cast my bread upon the water and allow him to work in our hearts together. So to that I say, hallelujah, praise God. He's the one that does it. We may never know what happens with our investments, but that shouldn't stop us from investing. So, weary saint, I understand. Look to God and trust Him. He will do it. Uh, we may never know what happens, but we can trust Him. In verse 6, he adds to the investment strategy that it should be done at many different times. He says here that in the morning and in the evening. In other words, he is speaking toward the subject of perseverance. Not just in the morning, like, glad I did my spiritual good stuff for the day. He says, continue, brother and sister, in the morning or in the evening. You don't know when God will prosper. Or perhaps he'll prosper both of them for the work of your hands. The Christian life should not be front-loaded or back-loaded about time. It should be consistent each and every day, throughout the day. 
Remember Ecclesiastes 3. He's the one in control of all times. You can trust it then in his hands. If I were to take that summarizing phrase I gave you before, after we talk about the financial side of this, I think it still works, but it works for us as we consider the kingdom of God. I earlier said, because God is the only one truly in control, we should invest freely, consistently, and in diverse ways. That's still true. That's exactly right, but allow me to add to it here so we understand what he's talking about. It's more than just finances. Here's my phrase. Because God is the only one truly in control, we should invest all that he has given to us consistently and in diverse ways, never looking to gain here under the sun. It's a very different perspective. Not one that's real popular with so many different financial firms. I'll say it again. It's not about financial investing for our retirement. It's about taking all that God has given us and investing it in the kingdom of heaven. Because God is the only one truly in control, we should invest all that he has given us freely, consistently, and in diverse ways, never looking to gain only here under the sun. Okay, now that I've gotten here, I'm really ready to preach, right? But I'm in danger of going too long, so I will not continue too much. Let me give you some final thoughts And then I want to allow you throughout the week to meditate on these truths. Jordan talked about this a couple weeks ago about meditating. We would continue the practice and discipline of mulling over what we've heard, that we would consider it, consider other places in the scriptures, that we would talk about it. Psalm 1 talks about this very thing. We would meditate upon it day and night. So I, I encourage you to do some of these things and make your own applications. But let me just make a few quick notes and then we'll close up. First, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25. It was read to us this morning. Kirk read it. It's a parable of the talents. Guys, this is investment language. This is talking about God who has come and given us each resources. Maybe it's a lot. Maybe you've been given five talents. Maybe it's a little. Maybe you've been given one talent. Maybe people have only a half talent. That's okay. The point isn't how many talents a person has. The point is how will they respond to the master's call to invest. He will call account not, if you have one talent, he's not going to call you an account for five talents. He's going to call you an account for the one that he gave to you. And so our response is, what has God given me and how then can I invest it for his glory? The one who was judged, if you remember in this story, the one who's judged as wicked and slothful servant is the one who took what he had been given and held it so tightly that he buried it in the ground so he wouldn't lose it. After all, who knows if he could have lost it in some sort of unfortunate accident. May I remind you that you aren't in charge of controlling the unfortunate accidents. It is God who works. We are called to invest the master's talents that he has given us. In light of all the discussion about the death in Ecclesiastes, I think it's also appropriate that I mention John 12. I could not get this out of my head this week. The process of investment is costly, guys. It, 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 it is, even to the point of death. And Jesus says, speaking first of himself, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Man, that's awesome. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What are you investing your life in? Do Jesus' words matter to you? Do you follow this and understand him? What kind of investment are you looking for to pay out? Here's what those, who will, 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 those of us who are wise will understand. The one thing that you love more than anything else, if that's your life, you are certain to lose it. But if you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and be willing to die with Christ, you will have life with him eternal. Abraham understood this. Hebrews, five, uh, Hebrews 11, 8 and following says this. Follow me here. All right, this is Old Testament. Follow me how he thinks about this. It's awesome. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. You're still hoping the same thing, right? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she, was considered, she, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, thanks a lot, were born descendants as many as stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Here we go. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Who do you think we are, guys? Having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, God has prepared for his people a city. But we are not home yet. We know that. We have been given talents to invest for our master today and tomorrow and for every day that you live before he takes you home. So let us invest because God is the only one in true control. Let us put ourselves in his hands and invest all that he has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for holding on to the life that we have been given. Would you help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth today? Would we not think that somehow we're doing you some sort of favor by coming to church or doing some good things? But Lord, would you give us hearts to see truly that you will bring us to a better country, a better city. Oh, Lord, please give faith to your people today. Please increase our courage to trust you 
Give us vigor and strength with whatever we have, five talents or one talent, to take that and to put it investment in all the different areas that you've called us to. I pray that we do so committed to you, loyal to your name, to the name of Jesus Christ throughout all the earth. I pray that we would do so freely and regularly and consistently. Fruits of repentance and, and faith and walking in you. And I pray that we would do it in all different types of ways. That we'd be strategic in going in this way and that way, God, and that you would bring forth fruit. Lord, we trust you completely and ask that you might receive honor and glory from your people obeying the beauty of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.